Yep. Welcome to the show today. Today on Early Music Monday, we get to sit down with, once again, the great Dr. Aaron Plisko. I'm very excited. She knows she knows quite a lot. I'm, I imagine you two are very good friends. We are good friends. At least you, we if you aren't, be better you friends. Be such similar interests and experience. <laughs> yeah, she is also a student of one DMA, Dr. Andrew Crane. I oh, feel like I, that's an inside joke that that only Dr. Crane's students know. But <laughs> luckily, his, he's quite prolific in the student yeah. category. He's got yes. a lot of students out there. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. So yeah, she studied with him at ECU. So that some is very Eastern, similar Eastern Carolina University for those who don't know the lingo. Yes. Thank you. That's why we have a co-host. That's why I'm here. <laughs> so anyway, we're going to talk to uh, Dr. Polisco did a fantastic um, interest session at South. What is it? What's it called? South, Southwestern ACDA. Southwestern ACDA. I don't know why I can't. It just doesn't seem Western to me. It just sounds it's, Southern it's, ACDA, but it makes sense. It does seem like it should be Midwestern ACDA, but I, who am I to say? Yeah. So Southwestern ACDA on historical rep for treble ensembles. The minute I saw this, I sent her a message and said, you must come back and <laughs> tell us all the things. I was. I literally stood up. Started typing, standing up because I was so pumped. So, and just that title is why I say you two should probably probably be best friends. I didn't <laughs> yes. need to know anything else. <laughs> it's true. Okay, so we turn now to our interview with Dr. Aaron Plisko. So, um, thanks, Aaron, for joining us. Back for round two. <laughs> you're a glutton for punishment, I think. If you're back for round two, but. Uh, I couldn't not bring you back when I saw that you were doing your your next ACDA intro session was, you know, historical music, particularly early music for treble voices. And I have no words. I'm just so, so excited to, to have you give us kind of a live rundown and then maybe some practical things with it. Stevie's got some great questions about the voice. Um, Stevie, before we go on, Stevie, why don't you... Um, give a little bit of an introduction to Aaron about kind of your specialty and what you do and kind of maybe the lens through which you see choral singing. So Cameron tends to be more of like a, a rep focused guy and like a musicality kind of guy, composition. I'm, I'm definitely more of a vocal production guy. I love how things sound. I love how the voice works. I love manipulating it in groups or individually. So I'm, if, if, if there can, if it, if it can be looked at through a vocal production lens, I will look at it that way. So, awesome. And so That's we we would just love to kind of look both of those lenses through some of the things that you've been studying now and the, the your past interest sessions, some works that you've seen and implemented those things into with your women's ensemble. So, so why don't you just kind of give us a breakdown, maybe of of the presentation and maybe some high level bullet points. Yeah, and I have, um, can I share my screen? Absolutely. Okay, I'll do that here in a second. Um, so basically, I mean, I've, I've directed a treble ensembles in one form or another over the last decade. I taught high school in North Carolina for a couple of years and I had a women's choir there. Um, and then of course now at Missouri State, um, 
I have one. And something I've always noticed, and and I know that all of my colleagues have have struggled with, is just finding high quality literature um, by dead people for <laughs> <laughs> trouble voices. They're like they're like the handful of go tos that everyone does. Um, not that they're bad, uh, but it just get, it it's I've always struggled to find engaging music that would be appropriate for my students that I also like. Um, and I know a lot of others have had that issue. Um, I've been the SSAA r and chair for Southwest ACA the last two years. So, um, you know, wow. people have questions and queries about that. Uh, so about a year ago, I decided to just compile this database of titles um, instead of just complaining about the lack of accessibility. I was <laughs> like, well, Let's see what's actually out there. Um, and so it's 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 definitely a work in progress. Um, I kind of work on it here and there over the past year or so. Um, there are currently over 500 titles though, which is more music than any one person could do in their lifetime. Yeah, whoa. Yeah, That's so there, that, yeah. That so 500, there are- 500 treble voice early music pieces? Yes. Wow, that's a, like, that's a pretty narrow category to have 500 pieces in. I know. So it's, you know, the process has been mind blowing because in my mind, I was like, oh, I'm going to find like 50 or 60. Um, but I just, as, yeah, as I've been searching and acquiring, it's just like, holy moly, there's <laughs> so much out there. Um, and so much that is, in fact, really accessible, not just in terms of like easy to find. Well, now that it's in a list, it's easy to find, but easy to find yeah. a score for um, or, or to purchase. Um, so and I'll show you this database in a second. Um, based, my parameters for this are pretty broad. Um, obviously, everyone on it that is represented is dead. Um, I stopped around 1920 or 1930. So there's no one, even if someone is no longer living if they were born after like 1930 I didn't include them um that's about a century anything less than that just you know feels less historical um I didn't include um folk folk music or music that um would have been passed down through oral traditions just because that's to me it's just its own separate massive body of work yeah um and that would have widened the parameters too far I didn't include anything that didn't have um, an edition readily available. Um, so, and I'm still, there are still a few things on the list that I haven't found scores for. So if, and if I ultimately can't find them, I'll delete them. Um, but if something's out of print, I know there's a lot of music from like the sixties and seventies that was published. That's just no longer being printed. Um, or if it's still in manuscript form and no one's made an edition of it, I didn't include it. Um, mm. cause no one wants to, you make know, an edition. <laughs> make an edition. Yeah. That's too much um so let me hear my well, screen no one's a pretty there's some well, weirdos out there aka there might be. <laughs> aka one person <laughs> might be some folks out there. so here's the um so the many database. tabs open i'm sorry i shouldn't have uh... <laughs> Um, so you can see it's organized right now by composer, last name, first name, dates, title, voicing, performing forces, arranger. Um, I've included where possible a link to editions. A lot cool. of times there are multiple editions available. I just included one link just because I didn't want to spend like, right. you know, 
the rest of my life doing this. Um, and then where, where I could easily find one, I also have links to recordings. Um, so this is currently located in a Google folder. So I can send you the link to this folder. Yeah, that'd um, be amazing. And we could post that link in the show notes for anyone who's who's looking for travel yeah. historical things. That would be amazing. So this is the the actual presentation, um, and that's just the link to the the database itself. Mm. Um, but it also includes links to a bunch of different um, resources for finding rep. Some of it standard, some of it less standard, like the uh, the Artemisia editions, which is like yeah. music by 16th and 17th century nuns, uh, wow. which is really specific but super neat. Um, so just a bunch of anthologies that are really useful. I particularly like uh, this multitude of voices, the upper voice anthems and the Oxford book of upper polyphony. Yes, I have that. That's a good one. Yeah, uh, lots of repertoire lists. That's like where I find all my music. I could get a master's degree in the Electro Women's Choir. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. So, much time. so yeah, there's all that. And then um, also in the folder is this little playlist, um, which is just like 27 selections from the database um, falling under different categories, just to sort of highlight uh, sort of a variety of what is available. Um, I have been working over the last couple months to really diversify the spreadsheet in terms of composers that obviously yeah. offers challenges based on like when and where um, sure. and resources available. Um, but there are a large number of female composers and then I'm trying to include as many non-Western European folks as well. Um, sure. Yeah, so for example, the St. Cassia is a ninth century Byzantine abbess uh, and her music, several of her hymns are still performed in the Orthodox Church. Wow, um, cool. Yeah, and, and so if you go back to the presentation, it's, it's sort of broken up, starting with like, I guess, the most accessible music, so with canons. So there are a bunch of canons, obviously the standards that everyone likes and does, um, but also a bunch that I've never heard of before that are really interesting, uh, like this uh, Canon Coronato by Isabel Leonardo. Uh, one of my nun friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a ton, just a vast amount of really accessible two and three part music, um, which I think is is probably the category where uh, educators struggle the most when looking for historical repertoire stuff for like, you know, an advanced middle school or high school treble ensemble. Um, yeah. There. There's so much that's so accessible. Most of it's accompanied or has like a continual accompaniment. Um, there are, there's a vast amount. I talk a lot about um, all of these major works that have duets and trios in them. Um, and, you know, we, we think about our favorites like the Vivaldi Gloria, the La Damuste, like everyone does that. But what about the soprano duet from the Vivaldi Magnificat? Um, mm. Or like, you know, there's the, the Bach Vier Island Mitch Bakken that everyone does that's quite uh, technically challenging just with the, all the melismatic writing. Uh, but yeah. he is a duet from his BWV4, Chris Lag and Todas Bondin, which is super accessible for younger voices. Yeah, um, cool. I'm all about that because, yeah. again, it's the same kind of thing where, you know, you have these, these staples in the whatever you, whatever you classify as the canon, and then... And it, anyway, 
we could talk philosophically about why that is all day, I think, which is not really that important. The important thing is is that there are other pieces and and other repertoire choices that are just as valuable, even by the same composers. And it's like, well, let's really explore some of this and, and help us get a more well-rounded picture of what this kind of music is all about. So I think that's – I'm here on the train for that one. <laughs> I'm curious. That, that's a really cool uh, compilation you got there. Are you doing this sort of as um, uh, as your Southwestern ACDA position, or is it just you're just trying to add to the professional world? Are you trying to make money? Are you trying to what's your motivation? Um, well, I'm definitely not trying to make money. I don't. I can't imagine. We're, we're giving it away for free. So that went off the door. Yeah, I can't yeah. imagine anyone wanting to like pay for something like that um you'd be surprised i think i would have a hundo paid as a junior high teacher for that okay. so <laughs> i'm very happy to give it to as many people as possible um i've been sharing it so i i first actually did this last summer at our state um choral directors association so i was actually the ssaa chair in missouri up through last year um and so it, you know, it was sort of like a marriage of a bunch of different factors. Part of it, just realizing that there's a need that needs mm. to be filled. You know, there's just this vacuum of, of repertoire and like, you know, we know that it's out there um, and it didn't seem like such a gargantuan task to just assemble it all in a really handy place. Um, and then as, so, you know, I presented it last summer and then I did it again this spring and I guess doing it again this spring just helped helped provide some motivation for continuing to, to add to it um, and to diversify the, the various um, eras and countries that are represented. Yeah, I have, um, if you, there's an episode, a few episodes back um, featured with uh, Laurie Strauss. She's a musicologist from the UK and she has a treble ensemble, Musica Secreta. And so she's found a ton of these Leonora d'Este and the, the the convent where she lived and wrote. And she has a bunch of additions on her website, too. And so we can add that to the... So, her, yeah, her ensemble is Musica Secreta. And, I'm uh, writing this down. Yeah, so you could, should definitely look at adding that to the list and a bunch of the additions that she's done. And they're a little bit more advanced. There's the five and six parts, and it's it's for mm -hmm. higher level. But th they're great. Those would be great, like, university level or advanced level, advanced high school university level pieces to add to that list. So uh, there's And there's definitely plenty of advanced stuff. Um, I sure. feel like... And maybe I don't know if this is just me, but I, I feel like I sh have always struggled more finding the easier stuff, mm, yeah. um, the, the more challenging music. And maybe that's just because I've, I've been in the world now of, of, you know, collegiate choral singing. So I, that's maybe just maybe what I'm more accustomed to. And I've spent more time looking for it. Um, so there's certainly plenty of that. But so um, all that's to say, just like a little plug to throw out there, the spreadsheet can be downloaded. Um, it's in a Google folder right now, which is view only, um, just because I'm not very fancy <laughs> and don't want to do sure. anything else. Uh, sure. But if, if anyone has any suggestions or things that ought to be added, I love hearing from hearing from folks with with anything because I 
you know, would love it to continue to grow. Yeah, and just make it this great resource. I I think that that's fantastic. Well, with that, you said uh, you ended in nine about a hundred years ago, nineteen twenty. You said so. Anything from you know the beginning of music to nineteen twenty, but then you're saying treble voices, and I'm just curious as the voice guy, are you clear as just to specify a little bit? Are you is that just treble clefs only what if there's like an alto clef in there or is there like a range you're looking at or how do you yeah good question so it's not it has not referring to a specific clef because of course a lot of earlier music uses different clefs um so it's less about that i suppose it's more about thinking of just the the ensemble that you would have so a choir of sopranos and altos and what would be vocally accessible to that which which varies depending on the age group. Um, there are, I know, a handful of earlier things in the database that are scored as SAT or like SSAAT or something like that. Um, so it's it's actually marked as a tenor line um, and it may even be like in the tenor clef, but would certainly be accessible for, for an alto voice. Um, I do in the presentation, I kind of conclude it by just reminding folks that just because it's scored for SATB choir doesn't mean you can't do it with your treble ensemble. Um, you know, a lot of this music would have been doubled by instruments back in their day. Um, so if there's something you really want to do and you only have sopranos and altos, then just find some instruments to play the tenor and bass part. Um, but there's nothing in the database that is actually SATB. Mm, it's all gotcha. just soprano and alto accessible. Yeah, and that's such a that's such a historically accurate practical thing because they did that they did that crap all the time, and so yeah. you get this balance of historically informed performance practice that HIPP mixed with then historically informed practical <laughs> practice of like well, they would have just thrown this in there and there's recordings of that all over the place. Like, well, sing the bass part an octave higher and it's just, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, the rules aren't as rigid as people think they are. And it's the same thing with like keys. You know, it's not just because it's an addition is, is marked in a certain key, that means absolutely nothing. So there would be nothing wrong with transposing it up a third or a fourth to make it accessible maybe um, for certain voices. So just- yeah. A nice reminder and i love that hip <laughs> yeah 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 hip <laughs> so my my next question is is what is what are some things that you've done with your ensembles with some of this music to to make it approachable and to make it successful so we've talked about maybe some sources on where to go to find it and then let's say you found something this is awesome day one here it is, new ensemble, new, or ensemble, here's the new piece, ready, go, kind of thing. You know, it really, it, it depends so much on the piece itself. Um, fair, fair. Yeah, so I make sure, and I, I know this is something we all try to keep in mind, that when I'm programming and selecting music, that I never fall into the trap of just checking a box. Um, so like programming something just because it's historical, even if I don't really love it. Um, Because that's, I think, such a hard sell, especially for our students who are less inclined to gravitate to that type of music. Um, My big thing is just getting them, getting to convince them that it's actually like way cooler. (laughs) Yeah. Like 
this this is the good stuff. This stuff is hot. Um, so we did fall. We did a Robert Schumann, um, and this is in the in the spreadsheet. He has two sets of six songs for treble voices. Um, so we did one of the songs from one of the sets called Mirfi, um, which is based loosely translated is like mystical ocean creatures. It's it's so it's about sirens, right? Mm. The mystical creatures who you know, sing from the rocks and lure, lure sailors and their ships <laughs> to the rocks to their deaths. Um, and it has these like really sinewy weaving lines throughout the entire thing. It's just the coolest, creepiest thing ever. Um, <laughs> but it was really hard vocally because uh, I, you know, my women's chorus is maybe only 30 or 40% music majors. Um, 50 or 60% of them are freshmen. So a lot of them are coming in with, you know, some musical experience, but not a ton. So vocally, they're not super developed. So taking something that advanced, it really, um, it took a lot of time and work, but it, uh, it was one of those things that felt like such a, such a great tool for developing them vocally, especially those younger students, because um, it just wasn't possible without those really like strong foundational things in place. Um, yeah. So maybe it did feel like a slog at times, but then all we would have to do is, is just like remind them about what, what the song was about. And they would just be like, oh, <laughs> killing all the sailors. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it sounds like a, it sounds like a, the best <laughs> possible anthem that they could have. You know? Kill all the like men. Who broke our hearts? <laughs> oh, a lot better for okay. a treble choir there. So yeah. you said you 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 kind of use it to teach those techniques, the vocal techniques. Absolutely. Yeah. So good segue into what I wanted to ask you, which is um, what I guess what vocal techniques do you find more how do I word this more easily accessible in early music? as opposed to other, like what, what specific elements of the voice would you use to teach using early music as opposed to other genres? Um, you know, again, it would, it really depends on like the specific like genre and the specific era, uh, because, you know, just from like, you know, a 30 or 50 year period, you know, music changes so drastically and just the way that the, the vocal lines are composed shifts so much like the pendulum swings back and forth. Um, so, I mean, that's not a great answer. It depends um, and <laughs> in this specific case. So the Schumann, like, you know, that's that's a bit later. Uh, so the harmonic language is is challenging. The And it's far more complicated than, you know, a harmonic language from like, you know, the, the mid Baroque would be. Um, and it's the same with the composition of the vocal lines. Um, you know, there, we there are these um, moving lines that spanned considerable intervals, um, but they, it was meant to be sung legato. Um, so getting these younger voices to negotiate, um, uh, first of all, just singing legato, which is something they all struggle with. Um, and, and, learning to uh, keep the technique consistent through various parts of the range, which is something they struggle with as well, particularly in the middle of the voice. Um, they come in with all sorts of weird habits. 
Um, so really working on bringing the lighter mechanism down because they're all very like bottom heavy when they come in. Um, and connection, I suppose, to the breath, regardless of where in the range it's falling. Um, I guess really where I'm going with all of this is that I haven't been very specific. Sounds like you're using it to smooth the voice out. Yeah, I mean, you know, at the beginning of the year, the the focus is always on like the absolute most most fundamental basics, regardless of the repertoire, um, because you know the technical challenges a lot of these young students are going to face. They're they're going to be largely the same, and um, I'm generally not going to start with something at the beginning of the year um, that might be beyond. Where, where they are. Maybe that's something we, we tackle later on in the semester. Um, but it always takes like a solid month or two for them to either remember how to sing or to, to grasp some of those basics and then start um, you know, implementing them with consistency. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's a great so. answer. Stevie, go ahead. I think it's a great answer. Um, I, I find a lot of directors like to use uh, early music to teach legato or at least help their legato along it's it's sort of which all the with all those long flowy lines it, it kind of naturally lends itself towards that but i like your i like i like transitioning through the weird parts the middle voice the you know the the passaggi using using early music to kind of smooth over those things it's all really good but again yeah you're totally right it depends on the song it depends on the and on i think the that's situation. the hard part is we get into these and and we you know you think of when you go back to your previous comments, Aaron, about how you know just because it was SSAT, I, I think I think mentally a lot of conductors and I, I'm talking about my past self would say, oh man, it's just like barely too low for my altos, can't do it. Like okay, well let's transpose it and let's because and really looking at okay, well what can my singers do? And then where's like a couple steps beyond that to stretch them, but nothing, but not, and, and so not something that's 50, 50 steps ahead. It's just maybe three or four to help us kind of use it to stretch. And we can play around with the ranges of those pieces to, to find the fit that really works. So. Yeah. You, you want to find it like growth, the growth has to be accessible. Um, which is why I think just having this massive list with you know links you can just click and look at makes it a little easier to then find that very specific thing you're looking for, um, you know, to fill a hole in a program or to teach a certain technique um, because there's so much and it's you know it's so different. Like um, you know, I included on this playlist these little handle Italian cantatas, um, which are essentially where he gets some of his uh, Messiah music from. So if yeah. you listen to them, like the uh, the the Quel Fiorche al Albaride, it is his yoke is easy. Like oh nice. Da, 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 da. Yeah. So you listen to it like that's familiar, but it's a duet for two sopranos, um, and both and both of them they're, they're quite melismatic. So maybe that's something I program to to develop agility. Um, yeah. You know, it's still moderately accessible in that uh, it's just two voices and it's accompanied. Um, there, there are also a lot of just like SS things that aren't necessarily soprano specific, but when we have our younger voices who aren't 
really like their voices are developing. So they're not actually sopranos or altos. Um, yeah. And it, things like that then allow us to have all of our students exercising all parts of their range uh, and not just, you know, getting put in a corner where they sing alto for four years, even though they're actually a soprano. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. I think that's a whole other can of worms, but yeah. I think, uh, but it's, but it's so relevant and switching switch. I have two seniors this year who are really like gung ho and they're really awesome. And they, they're soprano two, alto one ish ish but i i've had him switch like several times throughout the semester throughout the year i'm just like okay you're gonna sing alto you're gonna sing soprano and then switch and everyone else is like can you do that <laughs> they're like yeah it's awesome <laughs> but it's at first it's this like identity crisis of oh no i've only ever been at alto what do yeah. i do <laughs> like i've been demoted i'm not a first soprano yes. anymore that's real. The higher parts are the hierarchy. <laughs> oh, man. I, had a, I have a lot of experience. This is a tiny tangent, but I have a lot of barbershop experience. And one of my favorite activities is when you sing in a quartet, we call them snap quartets. You snap your fingers at any given point in the song, and then everyone goes down a part oh. in the same song. So like the, the lead goes to the baritone, the baritone goes to the bass, the, bar, the bass goes all the way to the tenor. And anyway, just keep snapping. And of course, it, it gets faster and faster. So yeah, everyone has to know all four parts. Uh, and it's obviously really hard, but it's so fun and so helpful. It sounds like a fun game. I'm just I've, always, I've always wanted to do it in like some sort of early music setting or some sort of classical. Yeah. You have to find the right piece, but it'd be very fun. I'm just thinking yeah. that I might, I might do that with my conducting class, just as a like, let's see how well we all know all of the voice parts sort of mm. game. Yeah, that's... <laughs> No, did you no, really no. prep? Did you yeah. really prep your score? <laughs> How prepared are you? <laughs> oh, man, it's too good. It's too good. So my next couple of questions, Aaron, is for you, you've said a couple of things that have really kind of made me think about your programming. And I think we've talked about it before, but it's something that um, we talked about it in our previous episode as well. And it's something that there's this balance, I think, and especially in an educational institution of who are we really programming for? And it's this balance of a bunch of opposites, I would almost say, but different parties of we're we're, we're trying to bring in an audience. We're trying to sell to the singers, but also teach the singers and we have to find fulfillment and other um, other professionals need to respect what we do, right? So we have this whole balancing act of things. And I wonder if there's any specific questions or approaches that you take, Aaron, in programming your concerts to where you're doing historical rep without it becoming a check in the box, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I don't always do like there, I've had programs where there has, it's been like all people who are living. Yeah. Um, so I don't, sure. and you know, I used to feel guilty about that. So for example, our, our ACDA program, we just did, um, I don't think there was anyone dead on it. Um, yeah. I used to feel really guilty if 
if that ever happened, like I was somehow failing my students. Um, but I've realized it with, you know, with certain situations and certain contexts and with certain groups of students, there are other priorities. Um, and, you know, trying to provide a diverse, a diverse musical experience for them doesn't necessarily look like any one given thing. Yeah. Um, so obviously I, I want to expose them to as much as possible. But again, like we said, you know, I'm, if, if something just doesn't fit with that particular program, I'm never going to force the issue just to check a box. Um, I, you know, that wouldn't be fair to the students. You know, it, the, the more you do the, the programming thing, the more you just like, sort of kind of intuit the fit of something. Um, and it just feels right or it doesn't feel right. And I think it's important to trust that, especially when it comes to knowing what what is uh, gonna excite the students, which as I, as I go on, um, you know, I've, I remember being younger and hearing teachers say things like, well, you know, you shouldn't just choose only things that the students like. And as I've gotten older, I'm like, well, that's dumb. Like, if my students don't like the music, they're not going to take choir. <laughs> yeah, that's so real. Like, over half of them, they don't have to be there. And so if they can't connect with the music they're singing, like, they're not going to sing in choir. Um, mm. So that's, yeah. I, I think that's absolutely important. Um, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to like everything, but you just have to think of your students and making sure that they're represented in, in what you're programming. Um, yeah, and, and a lot of it now, like as I get older, um, <laughs> I don't know why I laughed when I said that. <laughs> this like aged, <laughs> aged wisdom before us. <laughs> um, you know, the we all have like our dream lists and yeah. I, when I was 23, my dream list was like ridiculous. I also had no idea like what actually worked with like the people standing in front of me. So it was just this insane list of titles that was totally detached from reality. Um, and so at this point, my dream list for a specific ensemble tends to be pretty short. Um, so mm. like coming to this last year, there were three pieces maybe that I was just obsessed with. Yeah. Um, that I knew I had to do. One of them was uh, Flight, arranged by Ryan Murphy, uh, which yeah. was just published by Walton Music. Um, the, the editor of Walton sent me a recording of that piece uh, from its premiere at Western ACDA. And yeah. I listened to it once and I was like, I cried. And I was like, oh my goodness, like, I don't care what else we do this year. We're doing this piece. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and so, and that's kind of where it starts. You, you get those like one or two things that you, that just, you come across and it's so good. And like, I just knew it would work so well. And the text would speak to my students like so profoundly, which it, which it did. Um, and the composer of that original song is actually in Springfield. It was like all these things just converging. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Um, so it just kind of starts from there. Cool. I love that. And I think that that's, I mean, that's how I do it too. There's a piece and I'm like, we are doing this no matter what. And then you kind of slowly add bricks onto the foundation after, at that point. And yeah, that's cool. That's cool. So how do you, oh, sorry, Steve. Just you quick, go. quick follow up. You said, um, no, that's great. 
to do make sure if, you, if the students don't like your music then there's you know there's no point really um but at the same time i know that um you said earlier that you want to help them to learn to to appreciate new stuff so how do you know what's the balance between they're going to like this immediately and i can eventually get them to like this um how do you, you know, know when you're selecting a piece part part of that has to do with um i've discovered and it depends again on the type of student and you know how musically literate there are they are and the amount of time or effort it would take to to you know get from the beginning to the end of the process there's like this ratio and i haven't yet like discovered what that secret perfect thing is between the amount of time you put into something and then the actual uh like the product itself and what you take away from it um but i think there are things that i look at that i think would be super cool but you know it's like two and a half minutes and i know just from knowing my students uh, and their vocal abilities that it would take an unbelievable amount of work um, to, to get that. And I think if, if it's something that's maybe less immediately accessible to them just from a, a, a liking standpoint, and then the amount of work that it would take is, is if, if those two things are too skewed in, in the opposite directions, that's usually when I'm like, oh, you know, if I had like a professional treble ensemble, then maybe then I would do this. Um, but if it if it's takes too much work for it to be accessible for them, um, then that's usually when I begrudgingly have to put it on the back burner and say, no, this just isn't for us this year. Um, yeah. Also, like if I really love it, that's usually the the easiest test. Um, if I think it's boring if I can't imagine spending an entire semester teaching it, um, that's, that's usually like the first indication that it's just not meant to be. Yeah. Great. Yeah. That work reward ratio, I think is, yeah. is definitely something that I've learned from sad experience as a, as a rough, <laughs> as a rough a thing, one. but, but, but and honestly, like I've had some experiences too, where it's like, I, I chose wrong. I know I chose wrong and they still love it and it still worked, but I would never in a million years suggest that anyone do like my, my first year, eighth and ninth graders, we did a Pierre Seton French three-part thing. And they, there was a girl in the class named Jenna and the piece was called Jenna Fu. So that became her nickname the rest of the year. And it was like a 30 second piece. It took us forever ever to get the French, but they loved, I was like, what is happening? First year teaching, eighth graders, I, um, <laughs> it's just mass chaos, but, but, <laughs> but you, I think you, that's you definitely those, something. That, you need those experiences though. Right, to like learn how to find that sweet spot, right? Yeah, I mean, that was like my entire first year of teaching high school. I was, I look back now and I'm like, oh my God, like where were all the people telling me like, what are you doing? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, I still but. think I need someone telling me that, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, it's too good. Well, um, yeah, that I, I, I love the, I think the treble and it's something that I would love to, if it's okay with you two to post a link to 
on Sound of Ages website as we, you know, we're trying to bring early music out of the museum as mm -hmm. much as possible. And this, this treble, or like historical rep treble database would be great to link it to, to the drive or to your website or wherever you kind of have it housed, so to speak, that, that would be, it would be really great. And Absolutely. it would be a great resource for so many people. Yeah, so it's it's legit. It's just in a Google folder. Okay. <laughs> so sweet. I sent you the link to the folder, um, okay. which then has the the handout from the presentation, which has a bunch of those resources for just finding rep. Um, and then it has that playlist, which is like tw 27 selected titles of varying levels of difficulty from different genres and, and stuff. Um, and then there's the spreadsheet itself, which can be yeah. downloaded and organized by like, last name or title or voicing yeah cool All that fun stuff cool stevie any final questions or thoughts uh i have a question it's not really related to what we've been talking about so if you have a no okay um the thing about you specifically dr plisco is um that that interests me is the fact that you taught in north carolina then you went to and if i mess anything up please tell me then you went to Eastern Carolina University. Then you went to Cambridge? Oh, so other way around. I was at Cambridge where I did my master's degree. And then I was at ECU for a year. Okay. Then you came back to ECU. And then you went to University of Arizona in Tucson. So to me, that's fascinating because you have, you've sung and directed in an East Coast America setting, a West Coast America setting. Now you're in the Midwest and you've gone to London. So that's vocally, that is just fascinating to me. And I have to know, I know it's, you probably, maybe you haven't even thought about it, but what are the, what's the difference in the sound? Cause you know, like one director to another director, it's different, but regionally it's different. So West yeah. Coast, Midwest, East Coast, London, anything that sticks out differences, I'm fascinated by it. You maybe could spend a long time, but anyway. Yeah, well, this is great. Yeah, so all of those different places were with different types of ensembles. So obviously in North Carolina, I was teaching high school. Um, it was it was a large high school, um, but but nevertheless, the you know, fourteen to eighteen year olds. Um, Cambridge was just its own thing. Those were all undergraduate singers, but just you know, a very different breed of singer. Um, a lot of them, you know, having sung their entire lives and, um, and the aesthetic there is, is slightly different. Although I, I, and, you know, we talked about this the last time we, we chatted, I would yeah. say it's sort of shifting, uh, away from where it has been for the past, however many years with the, uh, with all the boys, sopranos and that, that being sort of like less of the model of, of soprano sound now um yeah but you know just thinking of like you know ecu to, to university of arizona to now missouri state just in terms of the students and regional differences i would say there aren't a ton the most obvious ones are of course relating to dialect um mm. and how that affects vowel production um but you know those can be addressed very quickly. And I would say the, the place where I experienced that the most was in North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Uh, a lot of students coming from rural towns, uh, 
yeah, other than that, it's, you know, it all depends on, I guess, who is leading that, that vocal culture. Um, and I've been fortunate to have just a couple uh, mentors, friends, colleagues in my realm that have been very consistent throughout my entire career. And so since that, that has always been there, um, I would, it doesn't feel to, to me, it doesn't feel like there really has been much of a difference. Interesting. Yeah. It, there's no, like, I guess what I, my, the nerd in me was hoping that like, like the East coast people have low soft palates and the West coast people have like tongue issues. And, but London <laughs> has, you know, like larynx issues. you know, I don't know. I, I, but none of that. It's all, everyone has the same problems all over the world. Is that what I'm hearing? Oh, yeah, everyone has the same problem. So I remember like going to Cambridge thinking like, oh, you know, Brits have such a beautiful accent. Like they're all going to have the most beautiful vowels. There are just as many like dialects and accents in the United Kingdom as there are in the United States. And there are so many that are just as um, non-conducive to, to lovely vowel production as we have in the United States. <laughs> And I, I remember hearing that like almost immediately, like, oh my gosh, like they're making the same gross vowels that my high school students would make. Uh, just yeah. I, I, a lot of it just stems from language. Um, I mean, I think depending on the, the student and culture, there there could be some some palate issues, um, but I think that all relates more to towards their actual like spoken dialect. Um, now, choral music, like culturally, is very, it, it's been very different from place to place. Um, mid, so being in the Midwest, it certainly feels like it's more of a thing here. Um, I think that could be for a number of reasons. Um, partly, I think, because of the role that music plays in the church and then, you know, the number of students who are coming, uh, coming out of that kind of background um, versus in Arizona and the East Coast, where it didn't feel quite as prevalent, um, feels like more kids sing. It's just more of a regular thing. Yeah. Um, and you're also kind of like surrounded on the North and South by like Texas and Minnesota. There's yes. like this, these breeding grounds, like spreading choral singing, you know, into yeah. the middle there. So which it's is a big part of it too. Our houses in, in the America. It's so true. Texas kind of like, like their influence kind of like whoop, seeps out and touches all these other states. And then the Lutherans all like, <laughs> so we're just kind of like sandwiched in the middle of all this, you know, great singing traditions. So culturally, yeah. there are some differences. Does that apply to rep? Like, is there, you know, does do Europeans like certain era better than, you know, the Eastern Americans? Um. I mean, yeah, certainly. I would say, you know, when I was singing in a chapel choir in at Cambridge, uh, a majority of the music we sang was, in fact, English. Um, it tended to be, and this was just this where the specific place where I was singing. It tended to be mostly early music, um, and if it wasn't early, it was it was an English composer. So there's definitely a huge emphasis on that. Um, but I love all of that kind of stuff. So that was fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you certainly feel that the Lutheran influence here in the Midwest in regards to the, the types of music 
that is programmed, but I don't think it, it's as prevalent here as it would be in like Minnesota or Iowa. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it'd be it's fascinating to just do a interesting Sorry. thing. I just, I just, I was. Thank you for obliging <laughs> my regional weird questions. I, 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 in my mind, I want to go to all these places so I, so I can see what it's like. But I guess maybe I don't really have to because it's all. So it's, everyone has the same problems and same interests, and luckily yeah. the world is so interconnected. And vote just said it's so popular that you know everyone's listening to the same music. So. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. Well, um, Dr. Plisko, thanks for joining us again. It's uh, ah. always great to have you on and you're like this wellspring of, of portal knowledge and experience. And so it's always great to sit here and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I should have known that. I pretend to on the air that I'm going to go look it up later, you know, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So it's fantastic. And if there's anything that we can do, if you're Choirs are coming on tour. You know, you have, I mean, the great Andrew Crane, DMA, lives here in Utah. But if you ha need other references or other ideas of places to go in Utah, you can reach out. And anything Absolutely. we can do to help build your your program and things as well is, is always something we're glad to do. So, Well, and likewise, if although, you know, I guess you're... Yeah as familiar with Missouri as I am, but you know, holler if you're ever in this corner of the world. Yeah, I'll yeah. definitely have to uh, come and pay your choir a visit before I head out. Yeah, absolutely. That'd Love be to. fun. Is awesome yeah she's really cool so insightful she's really good at balancing like all of the different things together whereas i, yeah. I just go gung-ho in this like one thing you know that i love and just like blah just bulldoze everything else and she's really good at looking at all the factors balancing all out Excuse well me. and and i I, I sort of hesitate to say this because I sincerely do not want to offend anyone, but I grew up uh, pretty close to where she teaches now. And when I was considering colleges to go to to pursue music, I, Missouri State wasn't even like remotely on the radar. Like it was just, it just wasn't. Uh, but now I, I think it's a credit to her and, and the other faculty there. Um, it kind of, it is on the radar. Like she's doing really good things. And I think it's a credit yeah. to her and her, her knowledge but like you said her versatility and her well-roundedness she's really good about being involved in in acda and and making herself known that way and making her her skills readily available for people and using other resources like i feel yeah. like back when i was in high school and trying which is you know 15, 12 15 years ago i was trying to um i was trying to look at other places but one of the reasons i didn't know about many places was because it wasn't quite as uh, prevalent a thing for for visiting people to come oh you know yeah. and now she like she brings in she i know she brought in dr jamie rhodes and dr andrew crane and and they i think that's an important aspect of the choral world today is this interconnectivity where we all use each other yeah i think you're totally right and it it makes it so much more even if it even if it's like 
okay, someone brings me in to be this clinician. Like, who am I? I'm this kid, this random 30, I'm not a kid, I guess, but from uh-huh. Spanish Fork, Utah. But the kids don't know that. The singers sometimes don't know that. And just just bringing the level of importance of, you're important enough that I'm investing in you as singers to bring this other person in. And it like, that reputation spreads to other singers. I think that's what helps grow the program. And so I think she's totally grown the reputation of that program. Again, like you said, like with the, the Labars and uh, as well, I think it's incredible. Yeah, and I, exactly what you said. I think um, inviting people is just as much about them helping you as it is about you just just knowing about this stuff anywhere else, you know, like right. He brings in Dr. Crane and suddenly Utah is on the map for these random Springfield, Missouri kids, you know? Yeah, totally. He brings in Dr. Rhodes and suddenly Carolina is oh, there's so there's choral music going on in Carolina and Utah and Missouri. And then she has <laughs> and then she probably talks about her experience in London and it's like, wait, I'm a part of something that's like actually global where I feel like in high school I was very you know, like at my oh, yeah. high school, we're going to win this competition or whatever. We're going to get a one at state. And it was all about like our little bubble. And I was completely unaware of yeah. anything. Else. Yeah, totally. Totally. Just and the awareness. Love, yeah. And I think what she's doing for early music, well, historical music more generally. I remember Andy Crane came. I remember one thing he gave us in our master's course. It was this choral music, uh, the great choral treasure hunt. And he goes, this came from an AC, a festival that I was adjudicating with another conductor. And we were so sick. He was so sick. He, he was talking about the other judge. He goes, this guy was so sick of all of these fluffy, non-contrapuntally garbage pieces of music <laughs> that he went home to, or they went back to the hotel and like just he just started brain dumping all of these historically relevant and historically informed and just historical pieces for emerging choirs and just like broke it down by piece and then eventually kind of made it into a a published list of historical music for emerging choirs. And it's phenomenal. And I've just taken that as kind of a baseline and, and expounded upon it. And I think what Aaron's done is take that next step of breaking it down into now treble works, which is so the need is beyond there. It's something that I've been thinking about for years as I taught junior high. It was, well, I'll just go to CPDL and search for this. And it's like, that's fine, but it takes forever because you don't know. There's just so much to, to sort through. So to have this resource, I think, is... I think it's also fascinating that she managed to come up with 500 pieces. I, I mean... Yeah, geez. It sounds like she's not even done and there are other resources and, you know... Who knows how many are out there but if you had asked me to name a treble early music piece like maybe i could have come up with like 10 you know yeah, it's like it's generous even for me too yeah and it's like okay uh, but here's a resource of 500 so i think that's what i love about the choral world is is people being so willing to share like in any other profession i feel like this would have been like she would have written it down you published it, found it, and sold it for, you know, 70 bucks. Like, if you want to know all these things, you can buy yeah. this thing. But he's just like, here, take my spreadsheet. It's just a spreadsheet. And it's, but it does so much for the choral world. Any more of totally. that? Totally. Yeah, totally. Hence this podcast. Hence this podcast. Okay. 
Well. It was sweet. a good episode. <laughs> this is like big gulps, huh? Well, see you later. Cool. <laughs> okay, Until well, next time. On yes. Early Music Monday. Early, we didn't time it. Ready to go. Early Music, Early music Monday. Monday. You can't do it. There's the, the internet lag thing. The delay is the worst. But Monday. if you like the episode, if you like the show, give us a rating and a share and a like and a review and, and an email and an email whatever else you do send us your feedback sound of ages choir at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you um if you want to be a guest on the show just email us and let us know and we're always looking for great guests and ways to bring early music out of the museum so till next Sounds time like a plan.